Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Those of you who come regularly will know that we've been following a series working our way through the book of Acts. And last week we looked at Paul's second missionary journey. And this week we're going to look at his third one. Now some of you will remember that on his second missionary journey... On his way home, Paul travelled through Ephesus and they wanted him to stay longer but he was obviously feeling the need to get home to his own bed because he said he couldn't stop and it said that they begged him to come back. Well, today we're going to look at him keeping that promise and taking the gospel into Ephesus. So I'm going to read from Acts 18, verse 23, on into the beginning of Acts 19. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and travelled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately, although he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explain to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Archaea, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from scripture that Jesus was the Christ. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Now, I didn't know that when we were going to plan, when I planned this, that today we were going to have six baptisms. So, isn't it great? But, since we'd last looked at this, 
Paul has been travelling around that region in southern Turkey where he has already preached the gospel and where he has already planted churches. And what he's doing is he's going around encouraging the believers. And doubtless Ephesus was on his mind because they had implored him to return. But in the meantime, this other believer, Apollos, has come to Ephesus and started to proclaim the gospel. Now, it says he was speaking boldly, and he was obviously very passionate and very persuasive, because it says, it makes it clear, that there were other believers there. But he hadn't taken on board the whole wonder of the gospel. He'd understood about Jesus, he'd understood about the need for repentance, but for some reason he hadn't been taught the rest. So in fact, he was only preaching a cut down version of the gospel. And we can see this because it says Priscilla and Aquila actually taught him the rest. So when Paul arrives in town, he finds believers but who hadn't been filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, to try and put this in context, I was struggling to find an illustration. But it would be like a man who needs to cut his grass, and he's given the wherewithal to do it. He's given a lawnmower, one that you push up and down. I know they're a little bit, you know, the old era, but I can certainly remember them. And looking around the room, I think most people here are of an age to remember lawnmowers that didn't plug in. Yeah? So, he has this lawnmower. But he's trying to do the work himself. It's a bit like being under the law. He has the ability to cut the grass, but it's a lot of hard work. And then a friend, very generously, gives him a petrol one. But they don't give him any petrol or show him how to start it. And now he has the potential to have the work done for him. Or at least the hard bit. Because the the engine will do the work. All he has to do is guide it. But actually, with no petrol and no power... He's still having to push it himself. It's still his same energy that he's putting into it to make any progress. The answer is to fill the tank with petrol and start the engine. And then the work becomes so much easier. It just needs a guiding hand. And this is where these guys were at. They'd heard about Jesus, they'd heard about the ability to save, but they didn't have the petrol in their tank. And that's the situation that as we read on, we find Paul soon remedies. Because he says, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism. Okay, that shows they'd come to a point of recognising that they needed to be saved and coming to repentance. But on hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus, and as he placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. 
just as an aside, this account diminishes an argument that we sometimes hear very clearly. Those who say that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is not something separate from salvation. Because these guys had come to repentance and they had clearly been saved. They were believers. But they were not walking in the life and the liberty of the Holy Spirit day by day. Now I agree, some people can be saved and receive the Holy Spirit at the same time. But actually, this clearly shows that you can be saved and yet struggle to walk in your own strength. So having overcome this, Paul carries on in his accustomed manner. And we read in verse 8 onwards. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them had become obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. He went to the hall of Tyrannus and he argued about the kingdom of God. It doesn't tell us what he taught, but we do know what the kingdom will be like. Because we see glimpses of it today. And we're reassured when we look in the book of Revelation, if you look in chapter 21 verse 4, it says, He will wipe every every tear from their eyes. Not every ear, I'm sorry about that. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. It's going to be a place where God's justice will be restored. Where wickedness will have no place but instead where there's God's love and grace and mercy and where his righteousness will prevail. But the Jews in Ephesus had become hardened to the gospel. It says they even started to speak badly about the believers. And so once again, Paul concentrates instead on the Gentiles. He moves out of the synagogue and into the Hall of Tyrannus. That's the lecture theatre of one of the philosophers in town, where they used to have debates and lectures each day. And what he did was he gathered those who wanted to learn more without facing the constant opposition from the Jews. And he did this over an extended period. It says he stayed there for two years, and as a result... It says everyone in the whole province of Asia heard the word. That's because people would come to Ephesus, to the hall of Tyrannus, and then they would go out, fired up, and share the gospel throughout the whole region. He spent two years teaching those who were believers. And look at the dividends it paid. The whole of the province of Asia heard the gospel. 
And then in verse 11, it says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. Now, when I read this passage, I'm always fascinated by Luke's choice of words. He doesn't just refer to God performing miracles. He talks about extraordinary miracles. Well, if by definition a miracle is a temporary overturning of the natural order of things, when is a miracle anything other than extraordinary? When is it the norm? Yet he refers to extraordinary miracles. What he means is, they were out of his experience, even having seen what God was doing through the believers and through Jesus elsewhere. Handkerchiefs and aprons took on a healing power of their own once Paul had prayed over them. Now, we mustn't get the wrong end of this. We mustn't be obsessed with the handkerchiefs. Because what this is showing is that healing is a sovereign act of God. And he will choose to do it however he pleases. And sometimes we will be the agents of that. But it wasn't the aprons themselves that had the significance. It was God showing his power. God once more had stepped outside of that box they put him in, in their thinking. And he was doing something new. You know, we need to recognise that we cannot and we must not try to constrain how and when God chooses to work. And sometimes when we see God at work, it will come in direct opposition to our rational thinking. Sometimes it will actually come in a way that insults our intellect. And we'll say, how can that be something of God? And yet, if you look through it at the core of what's going on, that will be what it is. God has a way of seeing things very different to us. And certainly quite outside of any rules we might like to make. And we need to remember that before decrying other churches or ministries. They might shout a lot. They might look like a bit of a showman. They might have become well accustomed to handling the media, or they might seem offensive to us in other ways. But the question, and the only question is, is this God at work? Because God has a way of looking at hearts and attitudes rather than the outside packaging. Listen to this account of one of my heroes. A guy called Smith Wigglesworth, who grew up not far from here. During a Sunday afternoon service at the church, a man on a hospital trolley was wheeled in accompanied by a doctor. The man had stomach cancer 
and was near death. When the time came to pray for the sick, he was wheeled up to the platform on his trolley. When Wigglesworth got to the man in the healing line, he asked the doctor, what's up? The doctor explained that the man was dying of cancer. Wigglesworth inquired where the cancer was, and when the doctor explained to him the man's condition, he wound his hand up, almost showman-like, and plunged it forcibly into the man's stomach. Now just reflect on that for a moment. Man dying, hospital trolley. He wound up his arm, showman-like, and plunged it into the man's stomach. The man promptly died. <laughs> and his hands slipped off the trolley and dangled limply at the sides. Panic-stricken, the doctor screamed, You've killed him! You've killed him! The family's going to sue you! Completely unperturbed, Wigglesworth calmly replied, He's healed. And moved on to the next person. About ten minutes later, can you imagine those ten minutes? Yeah? He's, he's dead. And Wigglesworth just said, he's healed, and moved on. Okay? About ten minutes later, the man came back to life, got off his trolley, and walked down the prayer line in his hospital gown with his hands raised. I hope it was a long gown. Okay? <laughs> Praising God. When the man told Wigglesworth he was completely healed, Wigglesworth, betraying no surprise replied simply, well, praise God for it, and carried on praying for people. Now, does that fit in our normal thinking about healing? But was God at the heart of that? Don't you love it? The manner was so unorthodox. But look at Wigglesworth's heart. Wigglesworth's heart. He didn't want to take any of the glory away from God. So actually, when the man said he'd been healed, he said, well, praise God for that. Do you want to hear another one? Does it build your faith? Okay. When he was visiting Belfast in 1926, he was approached by a man who pleaded that he come to pray for his wife who was dying. And then the account starts. When I got into the room, I saw there was no hope. As far as human aid was concerned, anyway, the woman was suffering from a tumour and it had sapped her life away. She would not live out one day. I said to her, do you want to live? She couldn't speak, but she just moved her finger. I said, in the name of Jesus, and I poured on the oil. Mr. Fisher was with me, and he said, she's gone. He was scared. I've never seen a man so frightened in my life. He said, what shall we do? Now, I'd said, lift your finger. You may think what I did was one of the most absurd things to do, but I did it. 
I reached over to the bed and pulled her out. Carrying her across the room, I put her up against the wardrobe. (laughs) I held her there. I said, in the name of Jesus, death come out of her. And like a fallen tree, leaf after leaf, her body began moving. Instead of lifeless, her feet touched the floor. In Jesus' name, walk, I said. And she did. Back to bed. (laughs) Is it orthodox? (laughs) Sorry? They're in giggles. Yeah, I know. I know. (laughs) Does it offend the intellect? Does it somehow feel wrong? Yet is God at the very heart of what's going on? then what's wrong is our thinking. And we need to be careful of that. Anyway, getting back to the passage. It amazes me that this passage about Paul, seeing the miraculous through his faith in God, is sandwiched between two passages that just highlight our own deficiency when we try to do things in our own strength. The 12 disciples of Apollos that we've already met, who've been baptised in the name of John, were impotent because they hadn't received the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And then as we read on, we read about some other people that were impotent. The seven sons of Sceva, We read on in verse 13, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches, I command you to come out. The seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them. Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? It's a frightening thought, isn't it? (laughs) Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who'd practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burnt them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachma. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. The seven sons of Sceva were impotent. And they were impotent because they had no personal relationship with Jesus. They seemed to think that they could exercise his authority and his power without knowing him. And how mistaken they were. But the same is true today. Some think that they will gain part of Christ's inheritance without ever really knowing him. 
And that's made clear in Matthew 7, where it says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? But there are some who profess to follow Jesus and do miracles in his name who have no living relationship with Christ. And then, as we read on through the passage, we find that, as we've seen time and time again, when the gospel is proclaimed, opposition starts to mount. This time, it's fueled by the silversmiths. They're losing business because Paul is in a centre of idolatry and is speaking out against it. No one is buying statues of the gods. And I mean, we have to see their complaint as a testimony to the success of Paul's work. It says in verse 26, And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. The city is in uproar. They storm the hall of Tyrannus. Now Paul's reaction was he wanted to go down and argue with them. But his friends begged him not to. And common sense actually prevailed. And the uproar died down. But Paul decided it was time to move on. And we read in verse 1 of the following chapter. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He travelled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because the Jews made a plot against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. And then it lists his travel companions, and it says, These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. And in Troas, things are not normal in Troas. In fact, wherever Paul goes, things are not normal. In fact, one of my favourite accounts of Paul's preaching happens in Troas. You'll find it starting in verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking till about midnight. We could manage that this afternoon if you want. With six baptisms and other bits and pieces, I reckon we could hit midnight if we try hard. And uh, Melk's preaching. How, how long are you preaching for this afternoon? Uh, we then 40 minutes. 40? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, can we come for breakfast? Um, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. 
Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Do you know that feeling? Yeah? When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. It's good, isn't it? If it isn't bad enough, he's fallen out of a third floor window. Paul goes down and jumps on him. Anyway, I'll leave that one with you. Well, yeah. He's obviously keen that people should see the power of God at work. From Troas, Paul and his companions make their way back to Jerusalem and meet up with the Ephesian elders again en route. It says in verse 16, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia because he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Now, this was the last time Paul would meet with those elders. And what he does is he reminds them of the main thrust of his ministry over the two years that he served them there. In verse 18 it says, When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You will know I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to you, both Jews and Greeks, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I might finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he brought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw the disciples away from them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I have never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit to you, I commit you to God 
and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he'd said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was the statement they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Do you know, it's touching, isn't it? Despite everything else, Paul has really got inside these people. He's touched their emotions. It says he went from house to house as well as teaching publicly. So he was obviously quite happy to rub shoulders with them and go into their houses and eat with them and teach them. And so it was with tears that they let him go. But Paul reminded him of all those things for a reason. And that was he wanted them to continue just as he had. He'd shown them a model of ministry during his time amongst them, and he wanted them to carry it on. And so after giving them encouragement and warnings, he departs. And that is Paul's third missionary journey. Now the sad thing is, time doesn't change things much. When I thought back to the followers of Apollos, we still see today people who believe in Jesus, who are baptised into repentance, but who don't know the full power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. When I thought back to the seven sons of Sceva, we do. We see people like that who expect to enter into Christ's inheritance without having a relationship with him. And then as I thought about Paul's ministry, as we declare the kingdom, we should expect to see signs and wonders following. It says in Mark 16 verse 17, and these signs will accompany those who believe. Okay, in some other versions it says, these things will follow those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands and they will drink deadly poison. Well, I'm still on my feet, certainly. It will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. We need to be expectant of the miraculous and not dismissive of it, even when we see it and the packaging around it offends our minds. Remember, God looks at our hearts and not the packaging. 
I just want to bring a simple challenge this morning. Are you like the followers of Apollos? Do you believe in Jesus, but not see the power of the Holy Spirit fully released in your life? Because if so, get some prayer this morning. Are you like one of the seven sons of Sceva? Are you expecting an inheritance, but actually haven't come to a point of faith in Jesus and maintain a personal relationship with him? And as we declare the kingdom, are you expecting to see signs and wonders? I know we've seen some healings, but are you expecting to see more? Because it says, they will place their hands on the sick and they will get well. It's a promise. It's not conditional. It doesn't say they may get well. We need to be full of confidence and expectation as we pray for people. I just want to say to you, we have baptisms this afternoon. Are we expecting the power of God to be manifest amongst us, even though we have non-believers amongst us? Are we expecting there to be opportunities to pray for the sick, even though we've gathered to see people baptised? If Mel and Gerard turn up this afternoon, because I know they were hoping to, are we going to have the confidence to offer to pray for their son? Because it says, if we lay hands on the sick they will get well. There's a famous quote from John Wimber. When he was asked why it was that some people he prayed for didn't get well, he simply answered that if he prayed for no one, no one would get well. And I think that's a wonderful testimony and a real insight. We may not be seeing the full power of the kingdom yet, but if we don't take the initiative and do these things, we will never see it. If we want to see it breaking through in our day and age, we need to be walking in faith and doing something about it. I just want to ask you to stand. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk.